Welcome back to the Starbase Indie Podcast, where we talk to and about people who are inspired by Star Trek or science fiction to work towards hopeful futures in the real world. So my name is Barrett Caldwell. I'm a professor of industrial engineering with a courtesy appointment in aeronautics and astronautics at Purdue. I am also the director of the NASA Indiana Space Grant Consortium. What does courtesy appointment mean? I haven't heard that phrase before. Ah, um, a courtesy appointment is basically a recognition that someone has uh, relevant interests, overlap, uh, skill sets, and and contributions, but uh, they don't have to pay me and I don't have to show up at faculty meetings. Hey, best of both worlds, right? <laughs> so, well, in, in some ways, yes, but um, then people always ask, what's a courtesy appointment? So they don't know what to do with that. So it, <laughs> it, it means that I do get to advise uh, AeroAstro students and be involved in AeroAstro research projects. So that, that part is good. That's very cool. So when did you first get interested in human spaceflight? <laughs> uh, that would be December 24th, 1968. Very specific date. So when I was a, a very little kid, um, you know, I, I was interested in, well, I was interested in sports. Um, but then I became very interested in the Apollo missions. Mm -hmm. And when Apollo 8 orbited the moon, I didn't care about Santa Claus. I didn't care about presents. I, all I wanted to do was stay up on Christmas Eve and watch the broadcast from lunar orbit. And uh, the astronauts... Uh, gave their their remarks and talked about uh, uh, good night and and good luck to all the people on the good earth and I and I said that's what I want to do with my life. So your work seems to focus a lot on interdisciplinary integration of aeronautics and humanities. So talk about why the humanities are important for getting us to the stars. Ooh, well. There, there are lots of different reasons. I think that one of the obvious uh, recognitions is that most people aren't engineers. And therefore, in order to understand the variety of reasons, beliefs, and priorities, motivations that people have and the, and the understanding that people have about exploration, you need to be able to look at it from a wider variety of viewpoints rather than just a, an engineering technical viewpoint. Uh, it's also simply true that in general, we, we as engineers want to think about uh, the rationale for uh, spaceflight or other uh, socio-technical systems as because it's cool engineering. And that's rarely the case that they uh, that people want these uh, engineering solutions or engineering processes in service to some other goal. And so I think it is it's probably simply too short-sighted to believe that we can understand human spaceflight as a human enterprise 
just from an engineering standpoint. Uh, and just because um, we are highly unlikely, I mean, it's not even technologically possible to take one person in a rocket ship by themselves, never talking to anybody else, and flying off to pick your favorite planet or asteroid or whatever. It's far too complex a, a coordinated social uh, enterprise. Uh, and therefore, you have to understand how people live, work, and play together, um, why they might not want to live, work, and play together, um, and basically how do people get, share, and use information well enough to get that uh, complex engineering system to work. And so that last bit, the get, share, and use information is the, the aspect of both systems engineering and uh, team performance and group dynamics that I, that I specify in my research. So that's your grouper lab work, right? Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, originally I started out by thinking about uh, humans in spaceflight as sort of an exemplar of those sorts of engineering as well as human complexities, but uh, finding out that, oh, there are lots of other uh, settings where the, those, still, those sets of issues uh, come into play in very much the same way. Yeah, so talk a little about the, the, what your lab focuses on and how, how has that been applied to spaceflight and other things? Yeah, so uh, in, in the history of group dynamics and social psychology, and so my graduate work is, was in social psychology. So I had to study like the classic group dynamics literature and the classic social perception literature and things like uh, conformity experiments and, uh, and social perception and um, deviance and all those things. Uh, but when you look at group dynamics, much of the literature is about what we would call social persuasion or uh, conflict, uh, either some sort of uh, debate style conflict or conflicts of uh, interest or priorities. Okay, uh, but when, I, when I'm focusing on most of my research, there isn't a competitor, okay? When we're trying to get uh, to, uh, you know, dock a booster rocket with a, with a space station or something like that, uh, there's no other team that you're sort of trying to compete against. There's nature. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of thought about, well, nature's cruel and nature uh, is out to kill you and all the, those things. Um, thanks, Neil. Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson has this great stuff about all the ways that, that, that uh, the universe can kill you. But really, I think what's more important is the universe doesn't really care. So we're not competing against nature in that sense. 
nature has um, resources. It has things that um, enable our activities and uh, it has uh, constraints that no matter how much you want, speed of light still applies. Um, you know, no matter how much it might be convenient to do it otherwise, gravity is still a thing and aer uh, aerodynamic uh, turbulence is still gonna make you have problems uh, keeping your uh, beverage in your cup. I mean, th that's just the way it is. And so I really enjoy the idea of being able to look at team coordination and performance when it's not really about competing or convincing someone else about how you're right. You know, the team is working together. And in that sense, they want to figure out in a problem solving set uh, sense how they're right. But it's not, oh, I'm just trying to score more points than you. It's that we're trying to get at truth. Yeah, it's not about being more right than somebody else. It's about a solution that'll work. Right. And so, you know, if, if everybody is working, as they say, uh, uh, on the same page, you know, truth supported is one of the one of the styles that they talk about it. That that's the goal, and you want to say, oh, I, I I figured this out, and that sounds like the best answer right now, and we've got the time to do it, so let's try that, and let's see if we can resolve that difficulty, and that's going to take time and resources and expertise, but um, you know, you don't really see in human spaceflight. Oh, I'm going to let this um, this asteroid crash into the uh, space station to prove to this guy that I'm smarter than he is. Yeah, you don't have any of those sort of space force conflicts where you're on the moon with another country and you want to kill those guys. Like that just hasn't been a thing. <laughs> that, that has not been a thing, and that is not the emphasis that I bring to my research. Right. And therefore, it that. That mindset works very well when you're doing something like humanitarian aid and disaster response, because, um, I mean, the, the hurricane is not keeping score, right? right? Yeah. And if you're looking at um, healthcare coordination at the level of healthcare delivery, right, the, if you want to think about diabetes or traumatic brain injury as the enemy, but it's not an enemy in that sort of human sense. It is a healthcare condition that we are trying together as a variety of experts to work together to help the patient in the best way possible to recover and sustain as much functioning for as long a period of time as, as we can. Is literally a force of nature you're working against, yeah. Or working in alignment with or in acknowledgement of. So it doesn't work really well to work against nature in that sense. Uh, 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 as they say, nature has home field advantage and she'll always bat last. Makes sense. So you have also done a bunch of work related to the public perception of engineering. So. Mm -hmm. What do you think the public understanding of engineering has wrong and how would you like to see that shift? 
Ooh, that's a dangerous question. Um, in most cases, the public really doesn't understand how engineering works or what engineers want. I mean, in, in most cases that I can think of, all the most noble engineers I know want to solve a problem. Uh, they may have gotten it completely wrong about why that's a problem or why one solution is a good solution compared to another one. But engineers really do have as this belief, hey, science is a really good way of asking and answering questions and technological progress builds our ability to test out our uh, hypotheses using the scientific method and let's build something that works. And from that perspective, many engineers actually believe that the engineering process and the artifacts, the, the outputs of their engineering actions are neutral. They're not actually intending them in that sort of politically charged or sociologically um, di divert, divisive sort of way. Um, and so that's one of the things that I think a lot of people get wrong about engineers. And a lot of times engineers get people wrong because uh, engineers tend to assume like many people, mo in fact, I would say most people tend to assume that others are motivated by and are oriented by some, some of the same things that motivate them. We tend to call that a theory of mind mm -hmm. uh, process. And so it, if you really believe that, well, engineering is a noble uh, activity and um, doing engineering well means that you respect the science and you respect the, uh, the materials and you respect the, the optimization process, it's hard for engineers to realize that not everybody will think about the products or the processes of engineering that way. Um, so let's talk about the Indiana Space Grant Consortium. You are the director, and it exists to support meaningful student hands-on experiences, including conducting research programs at museums, meaningful internships. So what are the, some of the most rewarding projects you have gotten to be part of as the director and principal investigator of the Indiana Space Grant Cons Consortium? Yeah, it, it is a mouthful. So. Uh, mm -hmm. Uh, really the, the goal of Space Grant and Senator Lloyd Benson uh, created this back in the 1980s, um, kind of like the land grant model and the sea grant model that everybody has a role and benefit from space and from science, technology, engineering, and math or STEM. And so my view of the role of Space Grant is to bring that in inspiration to the state of Indiana, to, you know, five-year-old kids and 75-year-old retirees and everybody in between. And so we've done a lot, not just for 
hey, here's how to do this really cool research on this aspect of enclosed life support systems or something like that, but just inspiration in general about STEM and inspiration that is associated with any aspect of NASA's mission, which includes Earth ob observation, uh, natural processes of the oceanic as well as uh, land segments of the planet, as well as the atmospherics of um, the, the solar system writ large, as well as uh, what are the different conditions um, that affect what we see at night. So everything from, hey, where are the stars and planets to, oh, what's that beautiful shimmering stuff that, uh, that we call the aurora and why, why does that happen? Um, and all the, all the things that NASA has touched, which is tremendously more broad than most people are aware of. So I think some of the things that I've most enjoyed uh, have been activities that we have hosted or participated in at the Indiana State Fair. So having little kids dragging their parents, their grandparents, their great-grandparents into this and wanting to point to them and say, oh, this isn't, isn't this cool? And I want to learn more about this. Or people that... Um, would actually believe, well, why do I care about NASA? You know, my, I, my life doesn't have anything to do with space. And then I ask them, what, what are they interested in? And they tell me um, about how they're a farmer. And it's like, do you know that a lot of what we do with weather forecasting and understanding of soil moisture and uh, different uh, hybrid crops to be able to grow on uh, spacecraft to keep astronauts uh, healthy and, and well-fed and emotionally um, supported. Um, all of that is actually part of NASA's mission as well. And, oh, yeah, we, we're looking at these aspects of water quality and water filtration. And uh, if somebody wants to know about precision agriculture, the, the, the entire system of precision agriculture everything from the GPS signals to the human robotic integration to the um, specified uh, delivery of this uh, uh, fertilizer versus this seed on this spot of land. All of that comes from NASA's work in human robot interactions. And so uh, GPS, I mean, GPS works because of our understanding of Einstein's uh, theories of relativity and how even minute differences in speed or distance between your cell phone and this satellite actually helps you understand exactly where you are on the globe. Yeah. What are some of the other things that NASA is involved in that would surprise people? You characterize it as tremendously more broad than, than people understand. Not just the internet that we're working on was you know, in, involved with NASA and a few other government organizations. These cameras that we're using for this interview um, are based on Earth, uh, Earth and 
uh, astronomical observation camera technologies that were developed, the microphones. Uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff about the history of um, noise cancellation and, and the ability to um, resolve a signal in the presence of everything from the fan behind us to uh, even the, the different processes in the computer itself. Uh, first cochlear implants were based on an, a NASA engineer with a hearing disability who wanted to keep doing his work in mission control. And so he helped uh, because he was an engineer and said, I want to hear this better, um, started developing technologies to allow him to hear the uh, voice communications better. And that ended up turning into the principles of cochlear implants that I don't know how many thousands or hundreds of thousands of people will benefit from that. That's very cool. So uh, last year, you had a chapter published in a book called The Patient Factor. And in that chapter, you talk about the human factors that are associated with patient self-care. So how does human factors engineering kind of interact with patient self-care? So as I said earlier, uh, one of the challenges is that engineers can get stuck in this trap of let me do it for you and that's probably not the way that every aspect of the world needs to be addressed so i as a person say well give me the tools and help, let me figure it out and work on it myself i as an engineer might say well i'll give you the tools and i'll figure it out so you don't have to and really, the truth has to be some combination of the two. So if you look back at um, healthcare 70, 100, 150 years ago, there was this idea that the doctor knew everything and the patient did what the doctor told them to. That has lots of different problems associated with it, especially if all the doctors are male and the patients are female, it's kind of hard for the doctor to actually understand what the patient's body is doing to, with, and for her. Um, but also there's this entire concept of uh, patient compliance that in a modern environment, uh, if the, if the doctor isn't fully aware of the complexity of the different factors that are in, in, in influencing the patient's life, not only is the doctor not going to get good compliance, but they really aren't going to understand what good patient care and good recovery and good wellness looks like. So there are several types of stories, but let me just pick one uh, for, uh, for an example. I would say until actually until roughly the time I was starting graduate school in the 1980s, we believed as in academic psychology and medicine 
believe that the concept of face blindness only occurred as a function of some significant trauma. Like you got, you got bopped upside the head. And that there were only a couple dozen cases in the medical literature about this. And so people in medicine thought that this was a very rare phenomenon. It took networks of patients communicating with each other saying, well, I've got this problem and you've got this problem and she's got that problem and he's got that problem. Ironically enough, Oliver Sacks, who wrote about a whole bunch of brain conditions, was face blind himself. But until there was this sense of patient activism, patients being expert in what their lives were like, that we started to have a different understanding of how to conduct that research and how to identify what face blindness really did in the course of a developmental sense or what was the distribution in the population. And so now we see, oh, well, face blindness is, has a significant covariance with being on the autistic spectrum, but we might be, but it is not, it's not purely causal or a singular response, but it might be affecting five or more percent of the population. That changes drastically, not only what we think of when we find out that a patient does have face blindness, but our understanding of what are the coping skills that someone needs to get through the day or get through their life if they have that sort of condition. Um, now, if I said, hey, you're colorblind, that's not rare, but it influences how we understand how someone takes care of themselves over the course of the day. And you kind of wanna know if that person is colorblind when you give them medications and then the only way you describe the differences in the medications is by color. That would influence their ability to manage their care appropriately. And so if you are a patient and you have you know, a family member that always helps you with something. That's an important skill set to know. And so that idea of expertise and that, uh, that ability to manage care of the hard work that it is to be a patient, um, that might, it probably is not something you're doing just by yourself. You've got other people, other family members that are helping you, that are supporting you. And that information can also be really critical in your um, management of disease and uh, avoidance of additional impairment or deficit. So let's go back to outer space for a minute. Uh, in, not, uh, it's not that I ever left, but okay. Right, sure, sure. Uh, you, you did a talk called Being Martian. And it, in that talk, you made the point that we learn by doing and failing. What are some of the key things that we have learned by failing in the space program? That there are a number of 
famous statements, some of them go something like, every great advance is written in blood. Um, if we look at the history of the US space program, originally, the atmosphere of um, a space capsule was 100% oxygen. That's a very bad place to be running electrical wires. That is the major cause of the Apollo 1 uh, disastrous fire that killed uh, Grissom and Chaffee and White. If that had happened in space, the astronauts would have been just as dead but we wouldn't have known exactly why it happened. Interesting, yeah, that makes sense. So having tests, even tests that fail, help you understand what does work and what doesn't, what you need to change. So there's you know, a lot of um, great uh, videos of the development of the, the Mercury and Gemini booster rockets exploding a lot, a lot. And uh, every time that happens, it's kind of like Edison, I haven't failed, I found 10,000 ways that won't work. And that's clearly what you're doing throughout all of these aspects. Now, one of the differences that I really want to bring to mind here is that I want to fail in the safest way possible so that human lives are not lost. But I, if I only do things that I already know what the right answer is, I'm not advancing my knowledge. If I'm doing things and say, hey, let's try this. Even if it works, I might have the reason why wrong. And so only by going a little bit further, building a little bit longer bridge, a little bit narrower bridge, do I actually start to find out what those principles are that help bridges stand up? Okay, well, and then until I build a, a bridge that's a little bit too long, a little bit too narrow, and vibrates in the wind a little bit too much and I get something like the Tacoma Narrows that does its galloping dirty thing and falls apart. That is my increased, that results in my increased understanding of engineering design. You've also, in some of your talks, you've talked about the social, cultural, and technical factors that are going to influence future human spaceflight. So what are some of the most important of those factors? One of the, one of the most almost obvious and yet hidden, uh, I, I, I mentioned before we started recording that I, that I took a few days on vacation. And literally, I was sitting at, at a nice pub having some, some food. And there was a conversation at the next table about some new, uh, somebody who had just accepted a job to work here at Purdue. So I came over and I introduced myself. And they started talking to me about uh, uh, space flight and going to Mars. 
And when could we do it? And one of the most significant constraints on that, on the answer to that question, when could we do it is, is it a round trip? Oh, sure. Okay. That makes sense. And the difference between a one-way trip and a round trip has tremendous implications on all of the aspects of the engineering systems design. The differences between one-way and round trip are technical, but they're also social. Now, for me as an engineer growing up in the 1960s, I've got John Kennedy in my head, landing a man on the moon and returning him safely back to earth. So to me, a one-way trip is not a complete mission. Now, someone could tell me that, nope, we're only going to send them one way. They're going to plant their flag and they're going to do those things and they're going to die there. And whether or not you accept that as a, a proper mission, an appropriate mission objective, is not a technological question. That's a social and political question. That's a human question. Mm -hmm. And your human questioning and answering of that drives the technology. Yeah, absolutely. That makes a ton of sense. And so many of the science fiction movies, it is getting somebody back home is such an important part of the plot and part of the way we think about those stories. Right. And in a lot of those stories, what is kind of lost is how many billions of dollars we're willing to spend to get one person home? Mm -hmm. And how many, how, but then again, there's also the, how much we're willing to sacrifice five, six, 12 people to save humanity. Again, those aren't technological questions. Those are social, political, and organizational questions. You've also talked about the issues we need to consider when we're developing concepts of operations for planetary science and engineering research and discovery. So first, tell us what a concept of operations is, and then let's talk about some of those issues. So a, a concept of operations, in general, is kind of like your playbook of things you want to be able to do and how to get them done. Mm -hmm. So if you wanted to have this interview with me. We had to figure out when we were going to have it, what channel we were going to use, and make sure that we both had the same software and were working on the same time zone and all those things. And you sent me a bunch of questions. I said, I like those questions. All of that is part of the, the playbook of doing an interview. Now, if we don't, if we don't align in time, if we're not speaking the same language, if you ask me a bunch of questions that I think I'm not gonna answer that, we don't have a successful interview. So a concept about operations is saying, what are we trying to get done today? And what are the tools and procedures and technological capabilities that we have in order to do that? And, and 
If we spend the entire day fighting about it, we're unlikely to get it done. There's a ton of those related to, you know, sending people to another planet. What are some of the surprising ones people might not think about? So I made a joke about, you know, the speed of light is not just a good idea. Um, it's the law. So if we're trying to send a message to Mars, the speed of light is what constrains how long it takes. And how long it takes is measured in minutes, four to maybe 20 minutes one way, except for when you can't talk at all. And so it's a really bad idea to tell someone what to do in very, very detailed, what we used to call command and control sorts of ways of take three steps going east and then wait for my next message. Because you do that and they take the three steps, it takes them about what, two and a half seconds. And they now have to wait 10 or 20 minutes to know what to do next. That is a horrible way to use an intelligent rover or an actual human to go do exploration. So you really want to have a lot of strategic level. Hey, we want to go over to that place, find the best route yourself. And when you get there, start looking for rocks that kind of look like this. Or let me know if you see any sort of outcropping that looks kind of like that or anything else weird. And then the astronaut or the rover has to know what weird means. And they have to be able to say, hmm, I can go this way, but you didn't tell me that there was going to be rock, a rock there, but that's okay because I can figure out how to go around the rock. So that sort of, I can go around the rock whatever way I decide is what we'll call autonomy. And autonomy is really always autonomy from whom and autonomy to do what, right? So um, the Perseverance rover ha may have autonomy to go into safe mode to say, um, no, I'm not, not gonna spend all this time talking to you because there's a dust storm. So I'm gonna just sort of shut it down for a while. But it doesn't have the autonomy to decide, I don't feel like looking for your rocks today, right? I, I'm gonna go over here and do something completely different. An astronaut could, but probably wouldn't unless there was a really good strategic mission enhancing reason, right? Oh, I've traveled you know, 100 million miles, but I don't feel like doing any science this month. Is probably not the level of autonomy that you really want an astronaut to have. But if you're eight, 12, 15 white minutes away, where you're on the other side of the sun and there's no message that can get sent, you can't stop them. So you can't just control what people do. You have to have coordination with what people do. You know, I, I've been listening to the Expanse audiobooks and they deal with those, those time gaps in a way a lot of science fiction doesn't. In Star Trek, they just, they're back and forth on the view screen like we are on Zoom here. And well, that's yeah, how this works. <laughs> because without subspace, the, the episodes get really dull. Right. Yeah, exactly. So the plot device of being able to talk across half a parsec in something approaching real time makes it cool. Otherwise, just 
talking down to the planet might take you three to five seconds of dead time. And, you know, that annoys us when we're watching a satellite transmission of an interview with someone on another continent. And there's that two second lag. And we don't like it. Imagine if you were trying to joystick control something with that one or two second delay. It actually gets hard. Yeah. Um, humans are not very good at handling delay. But the distances involved make delay inevitable. So you did a presentation for Starbase Cindy a couple of years ago, and you asked the question, should we be adding an A to STEM or considering a different model that which you called a team's participation? So they're the same letters. So tell, tell me how the team's model is different than the STEAM that we've heard other places. Um, I, I will have to admit, this is a little bit of, my rant. Um, cool. Let's hear it. So I've heard at least three different versions of we should add an A to STEM to make it STEAM. A for agriculture, A for architecture, and A for arts. Oh, interesting. Now, one of the points that I would make is that it's a sort of me too sort of, I want to see myself more explicitly named in these things, mm -hmm. right? Oh, maybe we should ha ha add another M for music. Maybe we should add another S for spirituality. You can't just keep adding these things. So that's one of the concerns that I have is this me too of needing to add additional things. I would say that agriculture is already there in STEM. Architecture is already there in STEM. Yeah, I would have argued that same thing when you said those two. I hadn't heard those two before, and that was my first thought, that they're kind of in there already. Right, but they're not as explicit, and especially if you are thinking about science as something that somebody's doing with an Erlenmeyer flask under a fume hood, then it's not the same thing. But that's actually just a the artifacts rather than the processes. Sure. Um, the other thing that I would say is that the arts are just a different way of thinking. Uh, I don't use the scientific method the same way when I want to talk about beauty. I don't, I don't use uh, parsimony the same way when I want to talk about um, joy. So I don't, I, I don't want the thought process and the images and the emphasis on this sort of practical, pragmatic aspect of the world that is represented by STEM to just have the arts jimmied or shoehorned in and just add it to that same thing because it's it's not, it's orthogonal to me. And thus, if we just add the arts, the music, the search for beauty and love into that STEM mindset of truth and logic, I don't believe that we're getting the same thing out. I'm not, I'm definitely not saying that we can ignore beauty and we don't need 
um, joy and we don't need this, this happiness or something like that, but they work together. Our full human experience is a combination of these practical and these philosophic and these um, spiritual components. And so the idea of, well, how do we talk about individuals creating more than just an aggregation of individual skills by working together? That's a team. So if you want to play with the acronym, turn it into teams, and then you remember different people with different skills are working together for something bigger and better. And it doesn't seem like you're just talking about a lot of hot air. No. <laughs> well, I'm asking silly questions. Purdue has graduated, if I'm right, more astronauts than any other university in the country. Is that right? Any other public university. Any other public university. So what is it, do you think, about West Lafayette that makes people want to leave the planet? <laughs> <laughs> I describe Purdue folks as having four major characteristics. They want to do the right thing. They want to follow the rules. They want to be loyal. And of course, now that I'm like being recorded, I'm trying to remember the fourth thing. <laughs> this was on my list of questions. It just occurred to me yeah. while we were talking. <laughs> do the right thing. Follow the rules. There's a difference between doing the right thing and doing things the right way. Mm -hmm. And so they want to make a real contribution. And this concept of human spaceflight, human exploration, is apparently a very old piece of the human experience. And as a public land grant university, part of the, of the mission is to help the people of the state by doing and sort of an intellectual exploration. But for whatever reason, since the early 1900s, that's also included the practical arts associated with moving through the air and through space. And thus, what we see is people who say, yeah, if I, if I want to do those things, Purdue is a great place to do it. Now, if I'm looking in 1910, that's because there's a guy named Wright who's doing flight training, okay? If I look in the 1920s, there's a trustee that says, we ought to have an airport because we have been doing this aviation thing. And then we you know, get this young woman who recently uh, flew across the Atlantic and you know, we decide to give Amelia a job not just to fly, but to inspire young women. And that airport and that history says that some, some kid from uh, Southern Indiana, Mitchell, says, that sounds like a great place to go and learn to fly. You know, um, my name's Virgil, but you can call me Gus. Um, and then there's another guy that is able to, fly uh, to the campus before he can drive to the campus. And, you know, he combines that with listening to a football game on the radio and 
Neil decides that he wants to be here too. And then the next set of astronauts are there because Gus and Neil were here. And the next set of astronauts were here because Gene and, and John and all the rest were here. And you know, then that continues to this day. And now there are little, little kids, little girls all over the world hearing about Sarisha and Beth. Um, and so I think that has a lot to do with it, but it's also about the optimism of what can be done. What a fantastic answer to my silly question. There are fewer silly questions than people assume. I won't say there are no silly questions um, because I've had to deal with some doozies. <laughs> I imagine. So in addition to all of your engineering, you also, uh, you're a writer and your bio says you like structured poetry as one of your forms. So yes. haiku is one of your favorite forms. Do you have a favorite haiku you can share with us? Oh dear, I, I I have a I have a number of haiku that that I like. Um, I will admit that I I'm still somewhat in, embarrassed to, to to just recite them, um, and part of it is because what we were talking about earlier they kind of live in a different part of my head. So there is the sense that um, a haiku and its related uh, sister form tanka, which is 31 syllables instead of the haiku 17 syllables and it's in five lines rather than three, but it's a very similar form. Mm -hmm. And to me, the idea is that those poems allow me to think about distilling beauty into a very, very tight, pure essence. And so it, it, it's hard for me to just spout one off the top of my head. Um, That's fair. But one of the ones that I, that I have, and I may be using this again, um, starts with your face. Your face is a gift. Close enough to dream. Now, close enough to see, to dream, to touch. Selene, teach us. Nice. Um, you also like, Sudden fiction. What is sudden fiction? <laughs> sudden fiction is writing for the impatient. Um, <laughs> uh, in high school, I I tried to write a couple of novellas, and you know that's especially in a manual typewriter that takes a while. Mm -hmm. So if you think about a novel as being a couple hundred thousand words, and a novella maybe fifty thousand to a hundred thousand words. Um, sudden fiction is how well can you tell a complete story in 3,000 words or even 1,000 words? And, you know, it, to my engineering students, I tell them that they've got to be able to write an executive summary to convince an 
convince a decision maker to um, go with your project and commit resources in 500 to 1,000 words. As a fiction writer, I should be able to convince you to care about a character and care about how they deal with a situation in 1,500 words. And have you say, well, what happens next? How does that turn out? Or what do they do after that? And if, if I get the, to have the reader care that much about what happens next, to me, that's, that's a great piece of fiction. And they're both definitely storytelling, right? That executive summary is absolutely storytelling in the same way. Hopefully it's not fiction if they're research projects. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> So that's the difference, you know, I, I have structured yeah. writing, sometimes it's fiction, sometimes it's um, beauty, sometimes it's truth. Actually, all of them should be some balance between beauty and truth. Absolutely. So you were at Starbase Indy as a speaker in 2019. What did you enjoy about Starbase Indy? Besides being able to sit in the bridge of the Enterprise? Um, that counts. Okay. I will admit that one of the things that was really, really cool was being able to go to a con and talk about science fact mm -hmm. and talk about real engineering and actually have a receptive audience, have people who want to learn more about the world as it is because the best part of science fiction is not just breaking the laws of physics with impunity. It's about telling compelling stories and we're, and we're playing with science and engineering in order to ask other questions. Absolutely. Yeah, playing with ideas is how I always describe science fiction. Yep. And engineering is very much the same thing. Mm -hmm. Just some different constraints when it's engineering. Right. But, you know, we certainly recognize that we had an, a whole generation of cell phones because we had communicators. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All kinds of stuff showed up on Star Trek first. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, a lot of those things they thought would take about 400 years to create and it only took 40. Absolutely. Some of them they thought it would take 40 years to create and it may look more like 400. But we'll get them both done, you know, eventually. Maybe. That's, that's a very optimistic, hopeful statement. Well, you know, we're all about hopeful futures, right? <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time. I really have enjoyed talking to you. Oh, this, this was great fun. Thank you. Um, I, I hope to have another chance to, um, to talk to you more and to um, play with some of these ideas again. Fantastic. Thanks for listening to the Starbase Indie Podcast. To find more information about our live event this November, check us out at starbaseindie.org or on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. See you on the Starbase!